You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. I'm a paid subscriber of Mark Halpern's Wide World of News. One of my favorite features is when he writes not real Ron Klain memos to the president. And today was one of those days. And Mark was really, you know, taking on the persona of Ron Klain. He was really prescient. Here's what he said. Again, this is a faux memo from Ron Klain to the president this morning. Quote, we worked hard over the weekend to get our Democratic allies to stop teaming up with the Republicans to keep making new, unrealistic and unwise demands on doing more for the Ukrainians. But we are concerned that Zelensky's address is going to undo all of our work and recreate that dynamic where we are just constantly batting down their calls for more only to then cave into their craven grandstanding. As you have said, sir, that is no way to run a war. All these armchair generals blithely calling for stuff that would lead right to World War III. I think that's exactly where we are now that we've heard President Zelensky speak. This is Mark Halpern. Hey, Mark, you saw this coming. I I was thinking in similar terms. I sent out a tweet this morning and I said the the issue here, given his popularity, is he going to push the administration into doing things it does not want to do? What did you think of the speech? I think Zelensky is a brilliant communicator for this digital age. You know, you think about if Churchill or Reagan had access to YouTube and to Instagram and to Zoom, if it weren't for the pandemic, I don't think we would be seeing these Zoom Zelensky speeches, but he takes he's taking advantage of the openness that Congress, like everybody else, has to have communication this way. And he did exactly what the White House feared, which is he said, thank you, Mr. President. Now, here's what else I need. Now, on some things, including the no-fly zone, the early reactions from Congress as we talk now have not sort of led to a rush to support a no-fly zone because the administration has briefed Congress pretty heavily on uh, on the, uh, the the dangers of that. But I think you you know my sense is the exact dynamic the White House feared is returned, which is you're seeing Democrats and Republicans sound like each other in saying, "Well, we got to do more," and the White House isn't doing enough. The president's going to try to counter that. I write about that as well, uh, you know, with his own event to try to say, yeah, well, we are doing a lot. Here's all the things we're doing, uh, because while the president would like to have the entire country behind him, including Congress, and not have to worry about the politics of seeming to not be doing enough, he's got to worry about the politics of not be seen to doing enough. And so far, you know, when when they've been caught there, uh, they basically caved. And, and we've seen a series of moments where Jen Psaki says, well, we're absolutely not going to do that. And then they do it because they recognize both public opinion and congressional pressure cannot be ignored. So you don't think the administration will capitulate on a no-fly zone? Zelensky did say, if this is too much to ask, and I have the rough translation of the speech, and of course, we all heard it, uh, quote, we offer an alternative 
the kind of defense systems we need, the 300 and similar defense systems, you know how much depends on these for our support. Uh, I guess that's what he gets then, right? There's all sorts of weapon systems, uh, drones, anti-tank, anti-missile, um, uh, more of everything that they've gotten, communications equipment, more intelligence. There's all sorts of things that, that are happening. Some are happening without publicity because it would be silly for the White House, as much as I'd like the credit, to reveal everything that's going to the Ukrainians because this is a war and you don't want the other side to know exactly what, what they're up against. But, um, but the, the, you know, Congress is in the mood now and they've been that way. And Zelensky's speech is only going to supercharge this to say nothing the White House is doing good enough. The president can lay out a billion dollars worth of things that are going there, and they'll say it's still not good enough, not not enough is happening. And part of it's logistics, right? The president can say, okay, let's get these weapon systems to the Ukrainians. He didn't snap his fingers, and it happened, particularly um, in the world now where we live, where there are supply chain disruptions. So uh, I think the White House is hoping to not have that be the narrative, have not, that not be the discussion. But But there's no doubt that Zelensky very skillfully knows exactly what he's doing very skillfully put the onus back on the president. All right, no, no fly zone, fine. But you're going to have to do all these other things. And I think they'll face a lot of pressure from the Capitol Hill to get that done. Foe Ron Klain says to his boss, the commander in chief, I know it is hard for you to keep publicly cheering for Zelensky when he is trying to play us like a fiddle, thanking us for our help in one breath and then making his own unrealistic demands in the next. He is exhibiting Zelensky, a level of sophistication that, I don't think he had when he first came into office and, and was trying to get a, a, a grin and grip with President Trump and get the, what was it, $400 million release that was then being held hostage at the time by the then president. Yeah, this guy is what, what we call a red light performer. And the red light's on, whether it's on his own handheld <laughs> phone to shoot, a, to shoot a YouTube video or, or Instagram or, or today. I mean, none of us went in today's speech thinking anything, but it was going to be a home run. And it was right. That's not true of a lot of people, right? People in public life, if if this were a speech by Merkel or even Boris Johnson, who's pretty good with the media, you might say, well, you know, he kind of whiffed on it. No one thought he would whiff and he did. He's an incredible performer. Uh, You know, just very similar to Reagan, right? Reagan was an actor and, and a, and a broadcaster. And people said, well, you know, that kind of makes him less serious, but the reality is those are extraordinary tools to have in political leadership. Uh, it's hard to come up with an occasion uh, in recent history. You can go back to, to Lequilessa and others and say, how much has this guy risen to the occasion? Fully, completely. He's astriding the world stage now on behalf of his people, but not just on behalf of his people, but on behalf of democracy, freedom, the rule of law, territorial integrity. He is now the spokesperson for that. And, and today's speech, yesterday's to the Canadian Parliament, just demonstrates that, that he understands symbolism, imagery, emotion, storytelling, characters. He was just a very skilled guy. And, and had he not been an actor, I don't think he'd have the, the, the skills here that, that he's deploying. Do you sense a Western hand, a United... Is there a Meacham somewhere among us who is... I mean, maybe Mark Halpert is going to say, look, all he needed was a modem. But to make the references to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor and work in MLK, etc., he just really seemed to hit all the, the correct buttons. I don't know as a factual matter who's helping him. I, I'd like to know, but but my sense is just from how much content he produces, and he is an extraordinary content producer. I think uh, this is the guy on Google, and and let's be clear, he's he's ex- displayed remarkable courage. But you and I, 
and, and, and just just to pick two people at random, you and I could 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 write or craft a speech like that. Maybe not deliver it as powerfully as he's done, of course. But you know, you know, playing the the nine eleven and Pearl Harbor cards is not like you know the most brilliant thing or you know creative thing in the world. But he understands what buttons to push, and he's like a lot of you know elites in Europe. He understands America. He gets it. He understands what buttons to press to, to produce the desired emotions. And, and again, this country is lucky to have it. Mark, I think faux Ron Klain is a step ahead on yet something else. It hadn't occurred to me. Quote, here is some pot. Again, this is this is fake Ron Klain writing to the commander in chief earlier this morning. Here is some positive Ukraine news for you. The New York Times says the bipartisan halo around that country means that any Republican hearings connected to Burisma and Hunter are unlikely to happen now if the GOP takes the majority. In other words, such is the 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 status of Zelensky in Ukraine that you think Republicans would now not touch that issue. Well, there's no way to kind of paint a negative portrait of Hunter Biden's connection to that Ukrainian energy company without basically saying, Ukraine is a is a corrupt place. And I don't think at this point anybody wants to go down that path. Now, maybe someday they will. But as of today, you know, there's there's kind of a bipartisan celebration of, of all things Ukrainian. And that, I think, would would foreclose that kind of hearing. So that doesn't mean there wouldn't be other hearings on Hunter Biden or other other investigations if the Republicans take the House. But for the Biden family, I think, you know, there's no doubt that they'd like to take Hunter out of the crossfire of a Republican-controlled House, and this makes that a little bit more likely. And and that New York Times story, which I linked to in Wide World of News, is incredibly important because there is, although it's a headache for the White House, there is more bipartisan uh, uh, comedy and and communication. Um, many, much of it done by uh, members of Congress associated with the group I work with, no labels, uh, to say, let's solve this in a bipartisan way. Let's rise to the occasion and help the Ukrainian people uh, push back on Putin in a bipartisan way. And that, that I hope continues. And I hope, uh, and I hope it extends to other areas as well, because these members of Congress, they're going on, on trips overseas together, bipartisan. They're having press conferences. They're strategizing about what legislation could be done to help the Ukrainian people. All of that's good for the country to, to be united. Now, again, I don't want to overstate the case because Republicans in one breath will say, you know, we need to stand with Ukraine. And another breath say, you know, the problems that exist are because of Joe Biden's weakness. Uh, so there's not there's not a full, um, you know, national unity here on the whole thing. But in terms of working together to help Ukraine, it's very, very unified. And, and again, great for America and, and helpful to, to the cause of freedom and liberty. Faux Ron Klain gave me some cover, and I appreciate it. Here's the quick backgrounder. Yesterday, as you know, the prime ministers of Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia went to Kiev and met with Zelensky. So I decide last night, this is a great survey question for my own website and newsletter. Quote, should President Biden accept President Zelensky's invitation for all friends of Ukraine to visit Kiev? And I got social media blowback early today, Mark, from people said, that's ridiculous. Of course, it'll never happen. In your memo this morning, quote, the Brussels NATO trip is all set for next week. I know we have an advanced team looking at your going to Kiev. And then you go on and make additional observations and suggest that the Polish border is a possibility. Again, it's a fake memo, but a lot of truth in it. And including on this issue, do you think it's possible that Biden will meet with Zelensky next week? 
they have to look at it, uh, given that other world leaders have done it, given, you know, Europe is so small, it won't be that far away. Um, and I think, as I write in the memo, if, if this were Bill Clinton or George Bush or, or Barack Obama, I have very little doubt that they would at least try to go. Now, we'll have to see on the days he's over there, you know, you know, if, if, if Kiev has fallen, hopefully not. But if it's under heavy ar- artillery fire, you know, uh, you know, of course he can't go. But if circumstances allow, I think I think I think the president will have to take a close look at it and figure out. And maybe they can meet in Western Ukraine. Maybe he can just go to the border and, and meet with others. But but he needs to meet with Zelensky face to face for the sake of solidarity of, the, of this coalition. And and if circumstances allow, I, I'd be surprised if he didn't. But it may not happen. And the president may have other reasons why he doesn't want to do it. But but if he's in Europe, he's in the neighborhood. I'd be hard-pressed to imagine he doesn't at least think about it or try to make it happen. This is the Smirconish Podcast from SiriusXM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. I don't know if you watched, but after Zelensky's speech, Kevin McCarthy, Scalise, Stefanik, they all took to a podium and and presented sort of a Republican response to this situation. Will you say a word about the politics from the GOP perspective of what's playing out in Ukraine? Well, I mean, this is a there's a hard thing to discuss because because of the you know the sensitivities and the complexities but i will say this it's hard, it's 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 less in the dna of democrats to try to use this issue for political purposes you recall how george bush and carl rove and others in the bush camp used 911 very self-consciously and explicitly to do, defy history and, and and have a very successful midterm election in 2002 uh, you know, just after after the events of 9-11. I don't get the sense that the Democrats will be as aggressive in using it politically, but they certainly would rather talk about Joe Biden, you know, depending on the contours of the conflict going into November. They'd certainly rather talk about how Joe Biden built a an ex- historic world coalition to confront Putin than that he would crime, inflation, 
um, probably maybe even COVID, despite the success the country's enjoying uh, in dealing with the pandemic. So, so Democrats will certainly be tempted to use it to some extent and will. And Republicans will continue to say, I believe, largely unfairly, that it's Joe Biden's weakness that led to um, led this to happen. Now, I think what happened in Afghanistan certainly is something Putin knew about. And, and other decisions, uh, uh, Joe Biden and, and the Obama administration, what happened with, um, with Putin taking part of Ukraine. But, uh, but, but really, the historic coalition that's been built with Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan and the president and other people in the administration, really, I think, quite impressive and, and well-managed. And so Republicans will try to use this. Will that appeal to Republican base voters to energize them for the midterms? No doubt that line of attack, almost no matter where the war stands, even if it's over and Putin's surrendered. If, if on the other hand, things are going poorly, uh, they'll talk about it even more. And then it may, it may work with independent voters. And again, all elections, whether it's a presidential or midterm, they're about turning out the base and they're about appealing to independents and undecided voters, swing voters. And I think that Republicans will, will use this. Although again, I believe no matter, almost no matter what the state of the war the, the politics of this are going to, in terms of the midterms, are going to be more about inflation and crime and immigration and education than it will be about the war, again, depending on, on, on where this goes. But assuming that, the, you know, the world, we're not in World War Three. I'm not giving it all away for free, but I do want you to mention the gallows humor in Ron. Who knew Ron Klain was uh, was such a funny guy? Do you know the line that I'm referring to? I have it in front of me, if not. <laughs> Yeah, the line is, I really enjoyed the five minutes between the end of the pandemic and the start of World War Three. Right. <laughs> it uh, sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a joke that's going around inside the Biden administration uh, because, you know, they're all exhausted from dealing with the pandemic and not everyone in the White House administration, obviously, is dealing with the national security threat here. But but the top people who were exhausted in dealing with the pandemic and, you know, some of whom were sort of trying to negotiate their departure from the administration. And, you know, if they didn't have job lock before, they have job lock now. And, and this is a this even more than the pandemic is a 24 seven story. So that gallows humor is intended, I think, to try to keep their spirits up. But the, the truth to underlying the joke that they basically went almost directly from the pandemic being all consuming to the war being all consuming is uh, something they're using to try to try Mark, to lighten the load here, lighten the mood. Mark, it's a great newsletter today i love when you do this but there's there's so much material it's it's kind of national lampoonish in in so far as you know you've got it all uh but you presented it in a way that is so engaging and entertaining so my hat is off to you especially today i, pre- I just thought it was really superb. i appreciate that i appreciate yeah, really that. anybody stuff. who goes to look at it for the first time just want to emphasize two things one is <laughs> as michael ahead. said it's not a real memo it's not a real memo but embedded in there is a lot of oh, my yeah. reporting and my analysis. And, and so as you read it, you know, you want to say oh, everything in here is absolutely true, but you can, you can see it as a reflection in almost every line of the reality of what's going on inside the Biden administration and on Capitol Hill. Nicely done. And thank you as always. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate Mark Halpern's here in the second hour of the Wednesday program. We're really fortunate to have him, And I mean what I say, I'm a paid subscriber of the wide world of news. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4 
Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124 and on the SXM app. Question, how does the United States and NATO stack up against Russia in a conventional, meaning non-nuclear war? Dr. Rowan Alport has looked at the issue. He's deputy director of the Human Security Center. That's a London foreign policy think tank. He joins me from across the pond now. Dr. Alport, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. Tell me the analysis that you've done. What study have you done of the issue of U.S. NATO v. Russia? Well, it's interesting because the study we did was is sort of arguably out of date as a result of the events of the last three weeks. Uh, but basically, the uh, study we did assessed sort of a scenario where Russia sort of made a grab for the, what are called the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. Uh, the scenario was that they sort of invaded with the forces we thought that they could have in place relatively rapidly. Uh, clashed with NATO. Uh, obviously, NATO resisted, uh, but uh, ultimately there was sort of collapse in the defences. Uh, NATO was therefore left with a sort of situation: well, do we attempt to liberate these forces? Do we the, the Baltics, or do we do we risk potential nuclear retaliation? Uh, but in, but I think that that scenario has suddenly become somewhat obsolete uh, in this context of Ukraine because now the forces that we previously a, because the forces that were previously allocated to the defense of, to a potential invasion of the Baltics are now in Ukraine. Uh, and B, because they don't, Russia does not have perhaps the level of capability we thought they did. Now, what analysts do is that they don't sort of come up with sort of fictitious scenarios where Russia is 10 feet tall. We sort of tend to go on a realistic worst case scenario. So Russia is sort of six foot six. And what we've seen over the last perhaps three weeks is that they're at best five feet tall in platform boots. Uh, so we, a lot, both ourselves and other analysts are now going to have to sort of go back to the drawing board, perhaps, uh, and come up with a new uh, sort of a sort of new balance in terms of assessing a potential outcome of conflict between NATO and Russia. In other words, in your modeling, it was not an invasion of Ukraine. It was an invasion of Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia and the Russians performed much better than they are performing on the ground in Ukraine right now. Correct. Now, it's important to probably flag that some of the poor performance uh, of Russia in Ukraine is not the fault of the Russian armed forces. The original sin of this entire operation was they do not have the troops required to invade and control uh, Ukraine. Ukraine is almost the size of Texas. It has a population of over 40 million uh, that's vastly greater than perhaps the Balt and the Baltic states have in terms of territory and in terms of population. They would be struggling desperately now, even if they were functioning at the level of competence we thought they would. Uh, but 
that's now they've basically got two two separate large separate problems they couldn't have done it anyway uh, and the forces they're working with now are not up to the level of capability they thought they had what kind of a drain dr alport on the totality of their military operation is ukraine uh, either in terms of uh, troops or weapons however you would express it in terms of troops well uh in terms of their sort of professional ready troops, right. uh, depending how you count in terms of the ground troops, this is absorbed between 60 and 70 percent of those they have available. Uh, in order to sort of drill down further, they'd have to bring in conscripts and then mobilize reservists, both of which carry an incredible degree of political risk. And from what we've seen so far, they're currently scraping the barrel in terms of what's left uh, of their sort of professional force. We've seen just today clips of uh, troops withdrawing from Georgia to be sort of redirected. Uh, the occupied section of Georgia uh, to be redirected towards the Ukraine. Uh, So this is taking a horrible pounding in terms of human life lost uh, and in terms of equipment. And one of the more interesting things we've seen, not only the poor performance of the soldiers, but the equipment that they've been able to deploy to Ukraine is in incredibly poor condition often. Uh, And that's just that just sort of emphasizes the issues they have with sort of discipline and corruption within the force. And again, that's fed into the lower level of performance than we might have otherwise expected. Dr. Alport, how confident are you in the information that you're getting from the battlefield in Ukraine? I ask because I said to a caller in the last hour of my program that obviously I don't have your skill set and connections, but I'm not sure what to believe. I see reports of troops breaking into grocery stores, of of them in memes where they say they had no idea what the mission was, that they were assigned, uh, that they are demoralized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yet the slog continues and the march toward kiev continues so how good's your data well i think uh, others have said we are living in uh, in terms of the social media in particular we are living in ukraine within ukraine's account of the war but that does not mean that what we are seeing is sort of outright propaganda and outright fantasy uh, there that we've got documents of photographed documentation of vast amounts of equipment that's been destroyed or captured uh, by the Ukrainian forces. Uh, we know they've taken a large number of prisoners. Uh, the big question that we don't have, at the point that we don't have information on right now, and there's been something of a media blackout on it, is the state of sort of the larger form, traditional uh, Ukrainian forces in terms of uh, their operational reserve, uh, the tank units, the mechanized units that may or may not still be in existence and would present a major threat uh, to Russia if uh, if they were deployed uh, uh, to the form of a counteroffensive. Uh, beyond that, though, uh, I, I would accept that your your caution is quite correct. As I said, we are living in sort of Ukraine's reality at the moment. Dr. Alport, earlier today, President Zelensky addressed a joint session of the American Congress. He asked for imposition of a, a quote, humanitarian no-fly zone. And then he offered an alternative, probably recognizing that the administration here in the States is not prepared to give him that. Uh, the alternative was a discussion of defense missile systems, missile defense systems. Mm-hmm. What exactly mm-hmm. is he talking about? What is it that he wants? Well, basically, he's asked for what can't be given to him uh, in terms of a no-fly zone. He's accepted something that is probably more practical in terms of what Ukraine requires for air defense. Uh, the... Uh, Countries in Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, Slovakia, etc., have a great many uh, weapons at their disposal, sort of old Soviet models, but the models that still work, that Ukraine itself is familiar with and its personnel are familiar with, that can be sent over the border to support Ukraine. So that's really what he's asking for. He's asking for surface-to-air missile systems 
systems that can reach further than sort of the stinger weapons that uh, NATO have been passing to Ukraine that can help bring down more Russian aircraft and hopefully uh, to an extent negate uh, the risk that Russia, that Russia will start sort of carpet bombing cities as they did in Syria, for example, uh, and hope and that will hopefully sort of remove that particular option from Putin's uh, repertoire. Would that be seen as a level of provocation by Putin? No, I, mean, I it's think a defensive, is, it's a defensive weapon that you're describing, right? Yes. Yes. It's, this is a very odd debate we've got into uh, in that we've already crossed the Rubicon in terms of the weapons we've transferred. Both the, these, the anti-tank systems in particular have and will continue to kill thousands of Russians in terms of their forces on the ground. The fact that we are transferring uh, surface to air missiles is far less in, is likely to be far less costly to Russia in terms of life lost and equipment lost. So we've sort of got this whole debate back to front. We've done the hard bit in terms of passing off thousands of anti-tank weapons. This is, I did, this is ironically far less of a provocation, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying as a civilian to understand why when we, give, when we impose sanctions, when we give money, when we give money earmarked mm. for weapons, when we give weapons, none of that seems to rise to the level of provocation as these, these MiG fighters that have gotten so much discussion. No, you're quite right. It doesn't make logical sense. We've sort of got, I think there may be a level of sort of inexpert traditional expectation in terms of fighters being provocative because they're what people see as traditional, large, expensive weapon systems, where sort of the smaller anti-tank systems, for example, are maybe the size of a tuba and can be carried around in the back of a car. Uh, There may be some sort of psychological barrier there, but you're completely correct. There is no, the logical barrier that we seem to have built up between transferring fighters and transferring smaller weapons uh, is a fiction. We've already what we've done is already objectively provocative. I support it personally, and I think it's the right thing to do, both militarily and ethically. But we're we've, we're trapped in someone else's fantasy in terms of what is provocative and what isn't. I think. Okay, so I understand now that the modeling that you did was of a slightly different scenario than the one that emerged. But nevertheless, I I mm-hmm. want to hear your opinion as to how the United States and NATO stack up against Russia in the circumstances in which we now find ourselves in a conventional war? Uh, it would be catastrophic for Russia. Based, they, they could never, even based on the sort of scenarios we put together, they could never beat NATO in a sort of all-out conventional war when the U.S. forces in particular and British forces were deployed to mainland Europe and in position within reach of Russia. But combined with the, the poor level of performance we've seen, uh, and the catastrophic losses they've suffered in Ukraine and the degree to which they are bogged down in Ukraine, it would just be impossibly lopsided now uh, in terms of the superiority NATO would have over Russia. And when when you model this, I'm, I'm envisioning uh, that you're in London with some giant table and, and moving tanks around <laughs> on maps. What is it that you do? Uh, it's slightly less glamorous than that. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you've, you've got the basic point in terms of we sort of model uh, sort of units for units, what forces are deployed in peacetime, what forces can be deployed from position A to position B in wartime and how quickly and how sort of combat capable we judge uh, one unit being or another unit being. So it's sort of, a, it's maths, it's science, it's art. Uh, and obviously no, no situation is perfect. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think uh, we will have to revise our calculations. I think definitely on the basis of what we've seen. Uh what do you want to leave us with, Dr. Alport? Dr. Rowan Alport is the deputy director who heads the Human Security Center Security and Defense Team. The takeaway is what, sir? 
The takeaway is that Russia is potentially going to be knocked down uh, the power ranking in terms of its international power for a very long time to come. This will ultimately, not only in the short term, but long term, prove absolutely catastrophic to Russia, not only in terms of its own power loss, but in terms of Europe's renewed commitment uh, to sort of develop their own armed forces. And it will ultimately benefit the US because it will allow the US to more tightly focus on the main threat of the next 20 or 30 years, which is China. Uh, I was just going to say, of course, the tiger in the tall grass is China. If China, yeah. if China decides to get directly involved, whatever that might mean, on the side of Russia, then all bets are off. Uh, it would make things incredibly complicated, but I seriously doubt they will be willing to do anything more than token assistance. This is a mess they will not want to get bogged down in. Do you think that that I mean, Putin was caught by surprise in terms of how things have gone in the last twenty-one days? Uh, there have been various accounts of what's happened. Uh, probably the most convincing I've heard is that he was systematically lied to, both in terms of the political situation in Ukraine, in terms of how Russia would be accepted, and in terms of the capabilities of his own forces. Uh, it will be a long time, I think, before we get sort of first-person accounts of exactly why what is happening has happened. But you that just, strikes me as quite a plausible you, you uh, just explanation. Put a, you just put a thought, a throwback in my head. They will greet us as liberators. That's what we in the United States thought if we went into... Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, that was not the case. No, and I think uh, it's probably far more intense in terms of uh, 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 in terms of Ukraine because they basically, on almost on day one, they attempted to send sort of airborne forces directly into the capital city. You do not do that unless you are 100%, not 100%, but 90% confident that the entire system will collapse in a similar way that sort of the Afghan resistance uh, to the Taliban collapsed last summer. Uh, that was not the case. Uh, and now Russia finds itself where it is now. I have a final question, and this time I mean it. And thank you for being so gracious with your time. Uh, has Russia, I'll use the American expression, have they hit us with the kitchen sink? Have they gone all in, in a conventional sense, in Ukraine, or is Putin holding back? I don't mean nukes. Take those off the table. Is he giving it everything they he's are- got? Not no, because they could still mobilize the the conscript element of their army, and they could still uh, try to mobilize reservists. But both of those would be both politically unpopular, take time, and ultimately the troops that they would deploy would not be that high quality. Uh, They would be even poorer quality than uh, than the ones that are in theatre now. So while they haven't thrown the kitchen sink at it, uh, there are no good options in terms of sending further reinforcements. Dr. Alport, that was excellent. I'm very grateful. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Rowan Alport, the deputy director of the Human Security Center overseas in London. He is the uh, the leader of the security and defense team. A lot of good information there. The Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.